0: Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Agalos Moussakitis, and together we'll dive into how your SaaS company's growth problems, whether it's customer acquisition, conversion, or retention, might be coming from a weak product vision. We'll then dive into how you can improve it and how that will impact both your product and marketing. Agalos, welcome to the show.
1: Nice to meet you, Victor. Great to be here. And I, actually, I'm very surprised that you managed to, to pronounce my surname. Thank you for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually normally ask people. I forgot. And so I'm, I'm, I'm double proud that this worked out somehow. It's Greek, right?
1: Yes, exactly. It's Greek. That's why I'm very surprised. Typically, people are struggling to pronounce my first name. And you you pronounced my surname, which is like that, <laughs> that high. <laughs> it's very Mission difficult.
0: I, I, and I have to admit, I did not ask my Greek friends about that. So I did not cheat. In any case, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, uh, your, your background, what, what you do. That'd be super nice uh, for our listeners.
1: I started as a marketer like 15 years ago. So I was a marketer for quite a few years, about six to seven years. I reached a senior level. Uh, headed departments, big departments, startup departments, little departments. But then at some point, uh, marketing didn't really satisfy me anymore. And it didn't really work as it used to work in the past. So the same things, the same person wouldn't be able to achieve the same results. That was me. So I started digging in into product and I pivoted my career to product. And then I digged a little bit further and I re-pivoted my career to customer research because in my view, it's the best way to build the best products. So I'm still around product, but as a customer researcher. That is pretty much a very quick overview of my background. At the moment, I'm also doing my master's degree in psychotherapy to enhance my customer research background. People will, uh, will understand why psychotherapy is very relevant with customer research in this conversation. But yeah, that's pretty much me. That
0: is super interesting. Also, I didn't know about your studies. So that's really relevant at, at some point because for customer research, especially, it's, it's hard to get the questions right, can lead you down to very wrong paths, so to speak. But you, you consult SaaS companies, right? And um, so what symptoms do most people come to you with, right? Because you consider that symptoms.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's a very good question because most of the, most of the customers of the clients or prospective clients that uh, reach out, they come with symptoms. They don't really realize what, what is the deeper problem, what is the underlying problem. So in literally nine out of 10 cases, such companies have uh, marketing performance issues or sales performance issues, or they have a high churn, and uh, an average founder tries to treat the symptom, tries to treat the, market, the low marketing performance by firing the marketer and hiring another one, or by hiring an agency or by hiring customer success to be closer to their customers so that the customer, uh, the churn will reduce. But this approach, while it's okay, sometimes it just covers the underlying problem. A high churn means that people don't really find what they're looking for or what they expected. A marketing performance issue means that the way that you are communicating stuff or the actual thing that you are communicating doesn't really tickle people's attention or you haven't found the right audience that will do that so there is an underlying problem that everybody can empathize but um, most of the times we treat the symptom and that's that's very sad because you know it just prolongs the problem
0: and especially since most people including myself I would I would treat the symptom as the problem and it just as you said we we think we we are figuring out the problem but we're just trying to put, you know, I don't know, a vitamin C at it in a way or painkiller, but without curing the actual cause of the disease. Now, how can I then step back and ask myself, how do I know that I have an underlying problem with the product vision? What's um, a decision framework
1: here? Just to add up on your previous question, the, when, when a product is good, people find it and buy it. Even if it's problematic, the tolerance level of users and of people when a product is good is very high. So if your product doesn't really sell, it doesn't mean that your marketing tactics are not good enough. It means something else. So the the very first clue that you have to look for to understand that there is an underlying problem is, is the problem that you're having big or small? (laughs) I, I know that's pretty vague, but is it a matter of optimization? or a matter of a problem that actually impacts your growth. Because if it's a matter of of an optimization, making the 1%, 2%, then you might be fine. But if it's a problem that actually creates issues to your funnel, then there is an underlying problem. So other things that might uh, give you clues that you have underlying problems. You don't know very accurately who you are. You don't know for whom are you existing in the market. And therefore, you don't know which are the audiences that you are speaking at, but most importantly, you don't know which are the audiences that you are building for, which directly goes back to your product. When we talk about product vision, automatically our mind translates that as the future. It's the vision. It's something that comes into the future. So I would say... We don't know for whom are we existing, but also we don't know how to advance that, how to build more of the thing that the audience wants, because we don't know what's the audience. We don't know who we are. We don't know what's the audience we're speaking with. So we don't know where we will be in two years. So that's a product vision issue.
0: When you're saying this, it almost sounds like, given that I have a clear product vision and that we, I don't have a product vision problem, hiring a, a decent enough marketer you know specialist in any of these fields should bring us the right improvements if you know it's the third fourth marketer and they're not solving the issue then probably this is not the marketing problem but the, the of the input material that i am actually giving to them is, is that what you're saying
1: that's very very smart it's exactly that when you hire a marketer and he or she cannot solve the problem, you have to do two things as a founder. The first thing, check the tactical. Are they doing tactically the right thing? If they're doing almost the right thing, not even, not even absolutely the right thing, if they're not doing any big mistakes, such as trying to sell bubble gum with inbound marketing, which is a very big mistake, that doesn't make sense, then most probably there is an underlying problem. And what 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 you what you just said Victor is one of the biggest problems that I see in the industry. Startups or bigger companies have a marketing problem or a churn problem or a sales problem and they blame the marketer or they blame the sales or they blame the customer success which is a very big <laughs> misunderstanding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's very spot on. And so how do I fix my product vision? You know, a lot of people would now say you know i mean this this dives into the entire positioning framework right um and, and there's there's kind of two things that that i would personally differentiate which is the vision or uh, how would i put it for who missed this and what is it solving right like precisely but also the other maybe personal vision right maybe i have a personal vision that i'm bringing into this that i'm 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 trying to do and and that it's not completely agnostic from from the customer and uh, how bad is it if somebody's vision is just but i you know i just want to make money i'm not here to save the world or anything like that
1: there are ways for you to Support yourself or help yourself decide what will be the future or the vision of a product, but there is no recipe to that. So, as a customer researcher, my job isn't to give you the answer, is to give you all the necessary information that you need to take this decision yourself in a very low risk or no risk. Actually, no risk is almost impossible. So let's say low risk. So for, for a founder to actually be able to decide such a thing. To take such a critical decision, we need a lot of data, qualitative data, quantitative data, all sorts of data, internal data, external data. So if I would give like a very short guide on how to decide your product vision, you first need to start from yourself, from inside, from the company, and start doing some customer research. Check which are your best users. What is the common thing between your best users? Are there any patterns? Uh, Do you see any common things in the way that they describe stuff? Do you see any common problems, any common unmet needs, which is a jobs to be done terminology, any desires, any fears, any jobs that they do, any outcomes that they expect that are quite common? Then do the same for your failed users. Were there any common things that they failed to do? Any common expectations that you failed to deliver? So try to find for Commonalities. These are. This is the very first thing that will help you understand what is good and what is bad. Set set a benchmark. Then another very cool thing that you can do is uh, do the opportunity algorithm. So for anybody that doesn't know that Google opportunity algorithm, and this is pretty much a survey. So here is the the quantitative part. It's a survey where you you need about two to three hundred answers where you basically. Try to compare your product with the alternative solutions in the market. I don't want to go deeper into that because we will need easily 10 minutes to describe it. But pretty much what it gives you is which are the products in the market that provide a high level of satisfaction for the jobs that you are also doing versus which are the jobs and the outcomes that are unmet, that are not yet satisfied. So it kind of gives you a quarter where your product can actually find a few opportunities. So customer research, define what's good, define what's bad, and then find a couple of opportunities that you can go. Second step, market research. It's not all about what we are doing. It's also about trends and about the external environment. So we need to evaluate the market, how the market is moving, where is it going, what are the trends. What big firms are saying about the future of the market? What do we know about the future of the market? That's the second thing. I'm not, I'm not really professional into conducting market research, but pretty much everyone can do that. And the third thing is what you just said, Victor. It's your gut feeling, it's your passion, and uh, what you know and what you believe in. So having all the available data, you need to, evi- you need to check them, and then you n- need to make a decision. And in most cases, the decision isn't straightforward. You have to believe your gut feeling and, uh, you know, follow your path, fo- follow your passion.
0: Yeah, because most of the time there's no clear answer, like crystal clear. Maybe sometimes there is, but but oftentimes enough, there isn't. And And that's where I guess the real like vision and insight that you already have, which might also blind you a bit, right? You might... Too much believe it. So you have the data, but then you have your vision. You combine that, and and that should should really now help you make a good decision and, and kind of put that into a framework of sorts, I suppose. Exactly. Wonderful. And so I have done that. And now, how does that? Is there is there any any frameworks or or canvases or or something that you have to define a product vision? Like because once we go through that complex that complex process, uh, I guess one of the biggest challenges now is to to communicate that to all stakeholders. So is there a way to put that simply that you like? Because I know there's a lot of positioning frameworks and messaging frameworks and tools out there. Something that you really like that that communicates that well?
1: There are, as you said, there are quite a few. I'm not a big fan of any of them. (laughs) I've made my own canvases for other things. But uh, when it comes to the product vision... I haven't used any Canvas. Uh, They aren't visually pleasing, at least in my eyes. So I haven't used any of them, but I'm sure there are plenty. But if people are looking for, let's say, a framework or um, a set of steps on how to actually come up with a product vision or come up with uh, things that you are going to build and how the future of your product is going to look like, I strongly recommend uh, reading uh, the, spring, uh, the Sprint book, which isn't really a tool for you to communicate your product vision, but it's a very good tool to actually work on your product and work on the future of your product and work on the innovation and the change that you uh, want to bring in the market. I find it very useful.
0: Well, thank you. That makes perfect sense. Now, um, and how does how does that information, how, my, my, my vision... In my positioning, then trickle into both marketing and product at the same time.
1: So, if you go back to, if you remember the questions that uh, we mentioned before, I mentioned uh, you don't accurately know who you are. You don't know for whom are you existing in the market. You don't know what is the audience that you build for, that you are building for. So, these questions are basically marketing questions. You don't know the audiences. We spoke about audiences. We spoke about uh, target users. These are marketing questions. But ultimately, it's your go-to market, which is a combination of what you're building and for whom. This is what you are bringing into the market. So if if you really don't know the answer to these questions, then you don't know which are the people that you are building for and which are the problems that you are building for. So you have a product issue, but also you have a marketing issue. It's (laughs) the one connects with the other. You cannot really solve one and have the other one unsolved. They go together. So if you technically, you do not have a product issue, but you have a marketing issue, then you have a product market fit issue. So you, you see how it connects. It's quite inevitable that you will not have one and you will have the other only unless Oh, th- there might be a case, actually. You might communicate something that you cannot really build. In that case, you are a scammer. <laughs> so <laughs> let's not...
0: That, that, that is a different problem to have.
1: Exactly, exactly. That would be the only case where you wouldn't have a marketing issue, but you would have a product issue.
0: Maybe something uh, similar uh, is, is the... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe you're not a scammer, but maybe you have a, a value gap. Is that, is that correct? That was another term that you threw out there.
1: The value gap is is the tool that I'm using to fix product visions (laughs) and um, the tool that I use to fix marketing issues and the tool that I use to fix high churns. And you might be wondering how is it possible that one thing explains all this. It is because the, the value gap is pretty much, it's a term that describes the discrepancy between the expected value that people expect from you and the actual value that they're getting from you. So if there is a discrepancy between those two, expectation and reality, then we have a value gap which actually creates marketing problems and churn problems, and you have a product vision problem, and you have a a broken funnel, and you have all sorts of problems that we have discussed today, but you have to understand But it's not only about churn or about marketing. It's an underlying problem, which most probably is the value gap.
0: And I think we should stress out again that even if people think they know exactly who they're building for, for example, through their gut feeling or scratching their own itch or even in-depth industry insight, that might still be a problem that results in in all of these issues, right?
1: The value gap expresses itself in uh, three different ways. You either oversell and underdeliver, which means that um, you don't really have a marketing problem, but you seem to have a, a, a churn problem. You either undersell and over deliver, in which case you have some power users. You have some people that, you, that love you and are, and are quite loyal, but you seem to struggle to find more of them, which is very, very typical, by the way. And the third is the confused version you don't oversell or undersell. You just sell in a way that nobody gets it. Or you sell in a way that nobody gets excited. It's very vanilla. It's fuzzy, vanilla, or complex. Uh, An example of that is um, engineers that found startups seem to explain their products in very, very technical terms. So in most cases, when when there is a lead and the founder is an engineer, I'm like, okay, they have a positioning problem. I, I know that before, <laughs> before actually browsing their homepage. <laughs> or um, the, 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 fuzz, the vanilla positioning, very, very typical. Building something and communicating it in a way that nobody really cares. So you're building something that not a lot of people care. And you have to go back to your power users to see actually which are the people that care. There is a problem here. There are some people that care, but we don't seem to find more of them. So what's the problem here? So these are all examples of the value gap.
0: That's very, very powerful. And when we go back to our power users and we, 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 we interview them and we try to find out what are the biggest mistakes people are making and don't get the right answer while, while doing it. In, in short, because I know you could write an entire book about this, and there are, in fact, books being written about this, but maybe just one or two uh, biggest that you've seen.
1: It's true. Uh, I don't know which one to pick, so I'll pick the, the most exciting ones. For the people that are listening, guys uh, and gals, you're not doing an icebreaker. You have to do an icebreaker. If you don't do an icebreaker and you are shy, the interview is shy as well. So they will feed you with uh, either lies or the surface or things that will not hurt your feelings. So good, icebreaker, it's very fundamental. Second thing, bias. It's called the, the researcher's bias. You actually ask things that provide the answer. It's like, Victor, I ask you, uh, Victor, do you find me handsome? Most probably Victor won't hurt my feelings. He won't tell me, no, you are terribly not handsome, man. He will probably tell me, you are, you are fine, man, you are, you're okay. I would buy you a drink. In that that case, if I take Victor's feedback at its face value, that I'm fine, that he would uh, buy me a drink, then I practically feed myself with the wrong information. So you provide the answer with your question. That's the second thing. Your questions need to be open-ended and curious, not providing the answer. Not being very shy, just being a warm person that is actually honestly looking to listen. Then there are, there are hundreds of other uh, problems, but these are the two that I have identified in most uh, product teams that are trying to do the research. Oh, actually, there is a third one. You don't really do the research. That's the third thing. So lots of pro- product people uh, say that, oh, I have to do this research, but I always postpone it. I always snooze the customer research. If you treat the research like the vegetables that you want to avoid from your plate, then uh, you are not really benefiting out of that. Uh, Research needs to be something that you do almost on a weekly basis, on a bi-weekly basis. So do the research. When you do it, start with a good icebreaker. And third, don't provide the answers. Make open-ended questions and ask why. Lots of why's. And then the conversation will lead you.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So uh, everybody out there, uh, do your research, eat your veggies and work out. Do you have any examples from your projects that, that you can share publicly? Like a, uh, something that, that, that you saw that, that, that you improved that, that was particularly interesting to mention?
1: A very good example. It's a project that I worked with uh, Weribuy. It's a Series B, B2B SaaS that uh, is building, is working on uh, a video conferencing solution that is browser-based and very, very we nice.
0: Our, oh, we use it ourselves. Uh, that's, that's our go-to tool. They're, they're awesome.
1: Exactly. They're awesome. I love them as well. And uh, before working with Whereby, I was uh, I was a big fan of, of the solution since the days that it was called uh, Appear.in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had some sort of uh, branding issue, I think.
1: Exactly. 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 There was, there was some drama with the name. <laughs> <laughs> so so whereby asked me for help to solve to fix to reduce their their churn their churn wasn't uh, wasn't high because whereby is a bad tool in fact whereby is an insanely good solution i love it I re- lots of people love it the problem was that uh during the coronavirus lockdowns lots of people that wouldn't use video conferencing tools they started uh, looking for solutions. So they were testing lots of solutions and they were switching, they were testing, they were switching. They would start with a solution and then they would switch after six months to something else. So all of these solutions experienced an insane explosion, growth explosion, but also very high churn. Lots of people were passing by, as you can understand. So when Warabai approached me, they had a pretty high churn rate and we had to do something with it we had to reduce it so i didn't already know that there was an underlying problem i started treating churn but i was suspicious about that so i treated it as a value gap issue i started uh, interviewing power users then i interviewed failed users churned users and then i interviewed a few fresh users and what i what i tried to do was highlight the differences what differentiates the power user from the failed user and from the from the fresh user so practically what is the expectation that we create that leads a user to succeed or to fail that's exactly what i wanted to understand so that we guide the ra- and we guide the product accordingly but most importantly we create the right expectations that lead people to succeed and not fail so when i did this research it was qualitative i paired it with some Quantitative research. The tools that I that I used for that was the solutions onboarding and the solutions cancellation experience. So I asked pretty much the same question: What is it that you expect versus what was it that you expected versus what is it that you are getting to those three segments of users that I mentioned? The only difference I didn't do it with the interviews. I did it with in-app questions during their flow during the onboarding during the cancellation experience, or during their their product engagement. So why I did that? I did that because the interviews are for depth and the in-app questions are for scale. And they also validate, the one validates the other. So we had the depth of the problem and scale, and also validation, that what my qualitative research brings is actually true and it gets validated by quantitative. So I, I don't wanna geek out more about research stuff, this is what we did. And we actually realized that churn wasn't the big problem. The big problem was that a lot of users were coming in to find an easier Zoom. And after six months of using Whereby, they would go back to Zoom. Because Zoom had more features. Zoom is a mass solution, builds for everybody and builds everything. So ultimately, what is that? Is it a product issue? It's a positioning issue. Whereby had to decide, because they they wouldn't go head to head with Zoom, of course. That would be unreasonable. They had to decide what are they, what are they building, who are they building for. And the research helped them decide that. And it also gave them a couple of marketing tips, marketing opportunities, such as go head to head with Zoom. One of the insights that I gave back to Whereby was don't be afraid of them. There is a Zoom fatigue. People are tired of Zoom, of the UI and UX of Zoom, and a lot of features, and the bureaucratic looks. So go aggressive towards that. And Whereby launched uh, a campaign about that, which was directed exactly towards uh, Zoom. Another uh, very cool insight out of that, and then I stop, was that um, Whereby was driving a lot of users in that actually wanted to go to Zoom. So what was the problem with that? Lots of these users, which were wrong users, were asking for stuff. They were submitting feature requests. And most of the feature requests that they would submit were trying to drag Whereabuy towards becoming another Zoom. So just discouraging the wrong users from coming in actually cleared the view for the whole Whereabuy team because they, they thought that they had to build everything. Because users were asking. This is a very typical example of wrong feedback that actually might destroy you, that it might backfire. Of a company that was very customer-led, but until the time that we did things right, this customer-led approach could actually have uh, confused them. And uh, it could result into them building something that wasn't the right thing and investing into the wrong direction. Does it make sense?
0: It makes a lot of sense. This is very, very interesting stuff. Thank you for, for sharing that with so much detail. So I guess if uh, anybody wants to learn more about you and, and what you do and how you work, uh, where, where should we point them?
1: You can find me on uh, growthsandwich.com. But if you want us to geek out a little bit more about uh, customer research, as you can see, I'm very fond of doing that. You can find me on LinkedIn. And where else? That's pretty, that's it my LinkedIn and through my website you can find me in both places
0: perfect um, so we'll, we'll of course link all of these uh, in our show notes and as you see uh, Agalos is, is always happy to chat thank you so much for being on the show this was super super insightful and uh, see you on the next episode
1: see ya. Victor thank you very much this
0: show is brought to you by Trust Shoring your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way, so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.